Good evening. Does anybody's neck hurt? <laughs> if you have a Bible tonight, you can open it at this time to Second Kings chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, uh, or if you didn't get a, a, a single sheet of paper that has our cross-references tonight, just lift up your hands and the gentleman will bring you a Bible and uh, you'll be able to follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. So we're in Second Kings, and while you're turning there, just a few um, announcements. First of all, this Saturday, again, there will be a crew here, if you're available, um, to come help with the, the furthering of the, the project. As you can see, it's changing rapidly. Uh, we're trying to move as quickly through this as we can, so any hands that are available this Saturday um, will be starting at 8, well, discipleship's at 8 a.m., and then um, kind of between that time and 9 o'clock, things are getting situated, so any time that you can uh, come Saturday, we would appreciate that. Um, you, you know, and even if you're available maybe a little bit later in the day, usually uh, around 1 or 2 o'clock, whatever we're doing, we have to stop because everything has to get put back, you know, so uh, everything's got to get vacuumed up, the seat's got to get all set up, the seat's got to get vacuumed off, I mean, it's kind of, that, that whole thing is a whole nother half of it, so maybe even if you can't come for the work part, but you can come for you know that part of it uh, that's always helpful because usually a lot of guys they come early but they can't stay throughout so they'll leave it too and then there's only a few hands left to, to, to help with that part so if you're available uh, later in the you know maybe one two o'clock in the afternoon to come and, and help with that part that's greatly appreciated as well also um, don't forget about the harvest fest at uh, Hyde Park Roller Magic that's November 2nd Sunday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Um, blast of a time. We've done that three or four times now. It's potlucks. You bring bring a dish to share. Uh, kids skate. There'll be games. The youth group's going to help uh, organize all of that, so it should be a great time. Uh, I encourage you to come out to that. So uh, that's it by way of announcements tonight. If you have opened your Bible, you are in Second Kings chapter 4, and let's again just ask uh, Jesus to speak to us tonight. Father, only heaven will reveal the seriousness, the power, and the grace, and the, and the impact of what we're doing right now. Lord, so few of us can even comprehend, Lord, the power of the word that we hold in our hands and that we're hoping to hear from you tonight. And so we're asking, Lord, that with open heart, you would be able to insert the sword of your spirit and cause us to hear what you want to say to us. Lord, we want your will for our lives. And we want to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so please, Lord, take this time. Let it not go by the wayside. And it's with attentive ear that we're listening for you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There is, and there always has been, and probably there always will be, a fascination with miracles. The thrill of seeing or experiencing or hearing about something that is supernatural. For some, that thrill, it's a sign that scientific law is not unbendable. For others, it offers hope that seemingly unfixable situations could possibly change. For others, it's a simple fascination with the supernatural, a chance to see something that's truly unique. Well, the ministry of the prophet Elisha, the man whom we're studying in this portion of Second Kings, his whole ministry revolves around the miraculous. There are some Bible characters that their whole thing is their leadership style, their charisma. For some, it's their insight or their teachings, what they bring, or their military prowess. 
But for Elisha, it's all about the miracles. Take the miracles out of Elisha's life, and his script becomes very small. He becomes almost an insignificant person in the Bible. But yet he's given many, many chapters because of the amount of the miracles and the type of miracles that he did. Some people ask sometimes, why don't we see miracles today in the world the same way we read about them in the Bible uh, in times past? And the answer to that is, we do. And God does continue to do miracles. But when God does miracles, he always has a reason for doing them. One of the reasons that God does miracles in the Bible and in real life is as a signet of authority. That is to establish his authority within the life of someone that he's calling or raising up to lead for some particular purpose. We see that with Moses, that when he was being sent by God, he said, God, how will they know that you're sending me? And God gave him miraculous things to do so that they would listen and say, hey, this isn't normal. God must be with this man. We see it with Aaron when some of the others contended with him over his place in the priesthood before God. God said, let their rods be laid up before me overnight. And the rod, the dead stick that buds and bears fruit, he's the one that I've chosen. And Aaron's rod budded, God establishing his authority in Aaron's life. We see it with Joshua in the parting of the Jordan and the falling of the walls. It says that the people put their trust in Joshua when they saw those miracles take place. We saw it with Elijah at the altar when he called down fire upon that bull, God establishing his authority through the message of Elijah. We saw it with Elisha in our study a couple weeks ago when he smote the waters of the Jordan and they opened up and it says that the sons of the prophets perceived that the mantle or the authority of Elijah had now been transferred to Elijah. And even in the life of Christ, we see him in the room where they brought in the the sick man and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. The people began to question and say, hey, who is this man who thinks he has the authority to forgive sins? And Jesus said to them that you might know that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. He looked at the sick and he said, take up your bed and walk. The miraculous signifying the authority that God had placed upon his life. Another reason that God does miracles in the Bible and in the world, is because it is sometimes necessary in the accomplishing of his will. When he has to do a miracle in order to accomplish his will, he does it. We see it with Joshua telling the sun to stand still. You know the story. The day was waxing on and the sun was beginning to set and he needed more time to finish the battle. And so he looked up and he said to the sun, stand thou still. And the sun stood still. It says it's the only time that God listened to the voice of a man like that. Why did God do that? Because it was God's will that his people rout the enemy. And so for the sake of completing the mission that needed to be done, which was in the will of God, God heard the voice of Joshua and he stopped the sun that night. We see it with Moses when the people were backed up against the Red Sea. There was a mountain range on one side, a mountain range on the other. The back, the Red Sea to their back and Pharaoh's army closing in on them. They were trapped. There was no way out. But yet God said, I'm setting you free from Egypt. And so in order to fulfill his will, he performed a great miracle. And he opened up the Red Sea so that his people could pass through on dry land. And God will do a miracle when it means his will can be done no other way. Another reason God does miracles is when it's necessary in keeping a promise that he made. 
God promises that he's going to provide for his people. And thus, when they were wandering in the wilderness, God, for 40 years every day, caused bread to rain from heaven so that his people could eat during a time and a season when they would have no provisions otherwise. He made water come out of a rock because he's going to provide for his people because he promised he's going to provide for his people. We saw with Elijah and the ravens, God going to provide for his prophet. And so he sends ravens with bread and meat every morning and every evening. We saw it again in the life of Jesus when they came and they asked about tax money. And Peter said, Lord, do we have to pay taxes too? I mean, we're children of God. And Jesus said, hey, render to Caesar. And so he said, Peter, go catch a fish. And you're going to find a coin in that fish's mouth. And you pay the tax for me and for you with that coin. Performing a miracle because he's going to provide for the needs as he said that he would. It's a promise that he made. God stands upon the promises of his word. And his reputation is at stake if he doesn't do what he says he's going to do. And so when God has to, in order to keep his promise, he will perform a miracle. And the fourth reason that God does miracles in the Bible is in order to reveal attributes of who he is. Why did Jesus come walking on the water to his disciples in the fourth watch of the night like that? Was he just showing off? I mean, hey guys, look what I can do. You, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if you could do this too? And you look at it and you say, well, what purpose did that serve? I mean, that wasn't fulfilling his will or keeping a promise. He was just walking on water. Why did he do it? Well, if you read the story, after Jesus saved Peter and calmed the waves, the storm, it says that the disciples marveled at one who had power even over the elements and they worshipped him. A whole facet of who he was was opened up to them that they hadn't known previously and it was done through the miracle that they observed of him walking upon the water. We saw it again with Elijah when he was in the cleft of the rock and it says that there was a wind that tore the rocks in half. And then an earthquake and a fire. God doing supernatural things unseen scientifically in order to reveal to Elijah something of who he is. And so God performing miracles in order to teach. Now most of Elisha's miracles that we read as we go through his life deal with that fourth category. That is God using the miraculous to reveal things about himself that we otherwise would not know. Now, on the other side, why doesn't God do miracles? And when doesn't God do miracles? First of all, God never does miracles as proof for his own existence. Some people say, if I see a miracle, then I'll believe in God. God does not answer that prayer and doesn't do miracles for that reason. Why? Because it says in Hebrews 11.6, it says that he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he doesn't do miracles to prove his existence. He also doesn't do miracles to fulfill the whims and desires of thrill seekers. There are whole ministries that revolve around the miraculous and they draw crowds on the basis of, hey, God's going to do a miracle tonight. And if you just come here, then you're going to get to see the miraculous. God doesn't do miracles in order to show off and to fulfill those desires. And thirdly, God doesn't do miracles when it will draw attention to an individual rather than glorify God. Even in the life of Christ, when he would do a miracle, whether it was cleansing leprosy or raising the dead or anything that he would do, the response of the people that's usually recorded is, 
that they glorified God in him. That they didn't look at him, or they, if they did, they said, how could God give such power to men? He never drew attention to himself through the miracles that he did. And that's a common denominator in the miracles throughout the Bible. They're always to draw attention to God and never to draw attention to man. But it still begs the question, why don't we see miracles on the scale of what we read about in the Bible? Well, we do. But usually, when God does a miracle in today's world, in our lives, it falls under the umbrella of one of those first three reasons. That is a signet of authority, because it's necessary in the accomplishing of his will, and also necessary in keeping a promise that he made. He doesn't typically do miracles for the sake of revealing something about himself. And the reason for that is because we have the full revelation of himself. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man was carried to a place of torment and Lazarus was carried to a place of comfort. They both died. They went to different places. And the rich man said to Abraham, which is an interesting concept, you know, when you read that text in Luke 16 and think about the implications of it. But the man in torments looked at Abraham and he said, hey, send Lazarus, who's already dead and in paradise, send him back to talk to my brothers. They don't want to come to this place. And Abraham said, that's impossible. One cannot pass from this side back over to that side. And he says, no, but send them, because if someone rises from the dead, then they'll believe and they'll put their faith in Christ and they won't come to this place. And Abraham's response was interesting. He said, let them hear Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. Interestingly, spoken before Jesus would rise from the dead. But see, miracles at this point, do not add to the revelation that's already been given to us. So God doesn't do miracles for that reason. Another reason I think we don't see miracles today is simply because we're not looking for them. They're happening, but we're not noticing. And there's just something about the way God is in his humility and in his character that he hides himself, not completely, but only in such a way as that if we turn around and kind of reassess and think about, God, how did that all work out? We begin to see where he did miracles in the whole thing that we might have missed it otherwise. I believe that each one of us probably misses miracles in our lives all the time. And it's only because we don't go back and consider how things have played out or how things worked out that we don't recognize and see where God has done it. He'll always reveal it if we look. But sometimes I don't think we do. Well, Elisha, his life... His ministry is giving to us miracles with a message. They're designed to teach and reveal the heart of God and the ways of God to us. And so we pick up in verse 8 of chapter 4 with the great woman of Shunem and her miraculous conception. It says that it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. Now that word that combination of words, great woman, that's the only time that that phrase is used in the Bible. That word great in the Hebrew means moral, spiritual, and mental greatness. That this woman is a woman of upstanding spiritual and moral and mental fiber, and God recognizes her as such. And as we move through this, we're going to see the attributes that made God say that about her. The only woman in the Bible given this description. Well, it says that she was a great woman. And that she constrained Elijah to eat bread. 
And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat bread. Now, Shunem was on the road that went in between Samaria, which was the capital of the northern tribes, Israel, and Mount Carmel, which was where Elijah, most, I'm sorry, Elisha most likely lived. And Shunem was right along that way. And so as he would make his circuit to the schools of the prophets, he would pass through Shunem on a regular basis. And it's there he meets this woman and she constrains him to eat. And then in verse 9, it says that she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passes by us continually. Now that tells us right there that Elisha wasn't taunting it. That if she had to perceive it or discern it, then it wasn't something that he was flaunting or wearing a badge or having an entourage or a, you know, a whole train going with him. That, that, that it was something there that she would see him as he would pass by. And there was something about him and she realized, hey, there's something different about this guy. And so she constrained him to eat, and then she said to her husband, verse 10, Let us make a little room, I pray thee, on the wall, or add an addition to her house. And let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick, and it shall be that when he comes to us that he shall turn in there. And it fell on a day that he came in there, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. Now you see that phrase, If you're maybe you're not using a, a King James as I am, but this is the second time that phrase has been used, that it fell on a day. That phrase or combination of words will be used three times in this chapter, and it's the only chapter in the Bible, only place in the Bible where that phrase is used, that it fell on a day. And it speaks, of course, just as, hey, it's just a coincidence. It could have been any given day. What we see is that a miracle is going to take place on this particular day. I think it speaks to both sides of the reality of life for you and me. See, for you and I, it's just any other day. We wake up, we go through our routine, we work, we come home, we settle down, we go to sleep, we wake up another day. And we think, well, all the things that are happening to us, they're just falling on a certain day. But when we see it from heaven's perspective, like we do here, we realize that for us, it might be an ordinary day. But behind the scenes, in the unseen realm, God is getting ready to do something miraculous. And he could be for you right now, just like he was for this woman, who for her, it was just another day. It fell on a day that he came in there, and as he's in his chamber, verse 12, he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, say now unto her, behold, You have been very careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? So he says, hey, do you want your husband maybe to have a civil job? Would you like me to try to win you some favor or a place within the kingdom that's greater than what you have here now? I I have that kind of ability. I could do something nice for you. What would you like? In response, she said, I dwell among my own people. She says, I live simply. I'm here. These are, this is our life. We like our life. I, I have no great need. We have everything that we could want. We're going to find in a little bit that this is quite a wealthy woman, you know, that they have a farm and they have servants and all the rest. She says, you know what? I'm content. I don't need anything from you, but thanks for offering. And so he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered. So the servant of Elisha chimes in. He says, verily, she has no child And her husband is old. 
And so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. The lights turn on. Gehazi, the servant, perceives what's going on inside this woman's heart. Hey, this woman, she's a great woman. Her husband's old and she has no child. And Elisha goes, oh, how obvious. How could I have missed that? See, in those days, in that culture, for a woman to be barren and to not have children was a serious stigma. It was a reproach. It was viewed upon personally, internally, and also externally by those that would look on as a curse. That that person did something that brought them out of favor with God. And thus, he hadn't blessed them with children. And so the line of the male would not continue. And so for a woman, that was a heavy burden to bear. And so Elisha picks up on it here and he says, I know exactly what's to be done for this woman. And so he said, call her. And she stood in the door in verse 16. And he said, about this season, according to the time of life, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, or don't say that. You man of God, do not lie unto your handmaiden. Elijah went, Elisha went right to the core of this woman's heart, to her deepest point of desire. And he touched something there. Have you ever wanted something really, really, really bad? And I'm not talking about, you know, a shallow something, a car or, you know, something that's a possession. I mean, we all know what that feels like when we can't get something out of our head. I'm talking about a God something or a deep something, like a desire maybe for a spouse or to be married or a desire for a calling, or for a direction in your life, something that you feel like is being placed upon you, or pulled within you, and and yet it's not something that you can do for yourself, but it's something that has to open up before you. Or like this woman here, perhaps the, the desire to bear a child, and yet for some reason, for whatever reason, within the will of God, that hasn't happened for you. In fact, the Bible says that that desire is probably among the most, uh, the deepest of any human desire that anyone could possibly have. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15, the wise man said that there are four things on the earth that are never satisfied. and One of them is not like the others. One is the grave that will never be satisfied. It will always seek for more death. The second is the barren womb. That is the woman who cannot conceive and yet has an aching desire to do so. The third is the ground that can never be satisfied with rain. And then the fourth is the fire that will consume as much as is given to it and will never say that it's full or enough. And so he takes three things in the natural and one in the human. And he says that this is the deepest desire that can be experienced on a human level. And now Elisha comes to this woman. Now, have you ever been there? And it doesn't have to be a barren womb, but it can be something in your life. And you've claimed every promise of God. And you've exhausted every avenue and given every effort to see it happen. And you've tried to help God out and jumpstart the process of seeing that desire fulfilled. And you've wrestled with God. And you've waited on God. And you've given time to God to do what it is that you're waiting for Him to do. And nothing happens. And then you begin to go through the gymnastics of of asking God, why not? And asking yourself, well, what did I do wrong? And then thinking to yourself that perhaps I'm cursed. There's something wrong with me that God just doesn't want to bless me or he's not hearing me. 
And you go through, well, maybe it's because of this and you go through things in your past. Or maybe it's because of this and you begin to try to forecast because of your future. And then you begin to go through the emotions. You get angry. And you say, well, what, what's wrong with me? Why not me? And then you start to get sad. And you think, well, no, this is something I really want. And then you trick yourself and you become apathetic. And you just say, I don't care. I don't care. I don't, I don't care. I don't want to anyways. I never did want to. Didn't want to. Didn't want to. And then that doesn't work and then you're frustrated. And you go through all these things and you're, and you're just trying to stable out and just embrace the will of God for your life even though it's so contrary to what you really desire on the inside. And finally, 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 you come to terms. You don't like what's going on and you're not satisfied with what's going on but you accept what's going on. And you're okay. And you're good. You're like, oh, I've been through that. I know that. I'm good. I want it but I'm good. And then someone comes to you and they say, hey, why didn't you ever have kids? Or, hey, why aren't you married yet? Or, you know, what's going on? And, and then all of a sudden you go, to, and you go through the whole process again in your mind. You're like, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. You know the whole thing. That's exactly what Elisha does here. He comes to this woman, and to her, he's the flippant prophet who just, without knowing anything that she's been through in her mind on this struggle, looks at her and says, hey, you're going to have a son about this time next year. And she says, don't say that. Don't mess with my emotions on this thing. I have found and I have felt that God often takes people beyond the point of hope before fulfilling the desires that have been placed within their heart. I think of Abraham who was told that he would have a son and it was 25 years and past the point of hope before God fulfilled that promise. I think of Moses who had a desire to lead God's people out of slavery and yet it was 40 years and that dream had become washed away in the sands of Egypt before God eventually called him and desired to send him back. I think of Joseph who had a dream and he saw a vision for his life and after 10 years in the slave system and the prison system of Egypt and then two years beyond the last glimmer of hope being put out that it wasn't until then that God brought him into the palace and put him before the Pharaoh. I think of Ruth and Naomi who thought that they were forsaken by God and that his plan for them was just destitution and suffering. When they came past the point of hope, God came through and he changed bitter back to pleasant again. You say, why does God do that? I think the reason God does it is as various as the number of faces in this room. I don't know why God does that to us and makes us go through it, but I do know this, and let it suffice to say, God is always wise, and he is never late. And if there's a season right now of waiting or of frustration or of unfulfilled promise within your life, God is in control of it, and God is ultimately good. Elisha wasn't messing with this woman's emotions. Look at verse 17. It says that the woman conceived and she bare a son at the season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. By way of application, I would like you to circle two words in verse 17. I want you to circle the word season and circle the word time. Those words appear both in both verses 16 and in verse 17. And I believe that there's a clue in that that's also encouraging to you and I as we wait upon God for things within our life. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1. Solomon said this. He said that to everything there is a season and there is a time for every purpose under heaven. 
If God has placed a desire in your heart and a longing for something, that is purpose. And Psalm chapter 37 verse 4 says that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean that he's going to give you whatever you desire. What it does mean is that he's going to place the desires in your heart for those things that he wants to fulfill within you in your life. He gives you those desires. That's purpose. But the Bible says that there's also a time for that purpose, meaning that it isn't just that there's a purpose to be fulfilled whenever, but God also has in his other hand the time when that purpose is going to be fulfilled. And until time and purpose come together within our lives, nothing can happen in that purpose. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you claim or want or desire or beg, it's not going to happen. But when time and purpose come together, then there's nothing you can do to stop God from completing and fulfilling that purpose within your life. And if God has ordained for you that there be an extended time as you wait for your purpose to be fulfilled, then he's got a reason in it. Another thing that I see in this passage of the attributes of a great woman, we see in it, and you can go back through and harvest out these nuggets of truth on your own, but we see that she's hospitable. She's perceptive, able to understand spiritual things. She's diligent and ready-minded when there's a spiritual task at hand or a physical task to a spiritual need. She's simple and content with what she has and where God has her. She's discretionate, not broadcasting her feelings and wearing them on her sleeve, and sober, knowing what might be real and what might not. And there's more to come as we continue seeing this woman, but those attributes clearly seen through the passage that we just read. And so the message of Elisha's first miracle is that there's a time for every purpose under heaven, and that when God's time comes, there is no physical barrier that can stop him from completing what he has willed and desired for your life. We move on to the second miracle tonight, and we see the raising now of this young child that she's been given from the dead. Verse 18. It says, and when the child was grown, it fell on a day. Do you see that phrase again? That he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said unto his father, my head, my head. Now, we don't know if he just had a headache, or if maybe he got whacked with a reaping mallet or something, you know. Or if maybe he's having an aneurysm or he's just sick. We don't know what it is. He just said, my head, my head. And he, the father, said to a lad, another young man, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. And then he died. Now I picture this young man as my 11-year-old son, my, my boy Rocky. He's just at that age right now where he's tough enough to take his toy wooden sword and go and hack tall grass in the field by our house and to swing on ropes and pretend that he's a pirate and, you know, just to, to do great things. He's got that masculine bud that's beginning to bloom within him. But at the same time, he's still young enough that he can sit on George's lap or cuddle up with me and watch a football game in that tender age. I picture this young lad now. He goes out. He says, Mom, can I go out in the field with Dad and the workers? And she says, yes, son, go. And he's at the prime of life, enjoying discovery, the world. And he goes out, and something happens. Now he's carried to his mother in this promise, this joy, this pleasure that she's now had for these years. We don't know how many of raising this young man. Now she watches as the life of this lad drifts away 
before her very eyes as he just sits there and lays within her arms. It says in response to this, verse 21, that she went up. And she laid him on the bed of the man of God, and she shut the door upon him, and she went out. And she called unto her husband, and she said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, Wherefore, why will you go to him today? It isn't the new moon nor the Sabbath. It's not Sunday. It's not Wednesday. Why are you going to church? And she said, It shall be well. She doesn't tell the husband what has happened. She doesn't disclose the reason why she wants to go and see the man of God, but we see something happening within this woman's heart that goes way beyond the natural. And it says, Then she saddled a donkey, and she said to her servant, Drive and go forward, and slack not thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and she came to the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass that when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with your husband? And is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. I like that. Circle it. Underline it. And when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to thrust her away, playing the part of the bodyguard, the faithful, loyal Gehazi. And the man of God said, Leave her alone, for her soul is vexed within her, and the Lord has hidden it from me, and he has not told me. Now, that I marvel at. I get excited when God does tell me something from time to time. He gets frustrated when God doesn't tell him something. Hey, She's vexed and I didn't know about it? God, what's going on here? I wish I heard God like that. So then she said, and here's her words now to Elisha as he's there, did I desire a son of my Lord? She says, I did not ask you for a son. And did I not say, do not deceive me? We've all heard that phrase in the past that it is better to have loved and lost than to have never have loved at all. This woman knows nothing of that phrase at all. She's saying to Elisha, I would so much rather have never had a child to hold in my arms at all than to have this befall me in this way. Why is God giving me a son only to take him away at this point in my life? Now, it's evident and becoming more so that God likes this woman. And I think this woman understands God just a little bit. I think that might be why God likes her so much. She believes That's clear. She has a relationship with God. We see that from the very beginning. We also see that she's settled the lordship issue. He's the lord of her life. She wasn't bitter or angry about the fact that she hadn't had a child. She was willing to build a room for Elisha and show him great hospitality, even though she wasn't necessarily pleased with the way things had fallen out for her from the hand of the Lord before. She's under his lordship. Then she receives the blessing that he has for her. And even now, when things go sideways on her, she doesn't get bitter. She doesn't become cynical. She doesn't go out to her husband and say, see what the man of God did? Do you see the way God has dealt with us? He gave and then he took away. She doesn't do that. She realizes something. She realizes, I know who God is, and God didn't give me a child just so that he could take him away. There's more to this story. This isn't over yet. 
And so she comes to Elisha with boldness and she says, Did I not say, do not deceive me? So Elisha responds, verse 29. And he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins. That means just clear your schedule, get yourself together, and take my staff in your hand and go thy way. Now the staff whether it was Moses' staff or here Elisha's staff, it was a signet or a symbol of the authority or the calling upon that person's life. And he says, take my staff, my authority, and go thy way. And if you meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again. And lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. Now, Does that phrase sound familiar? Do you remember when Elisha was walking with Elijah in the final days of his life? They came to Gilgal and Elijah said, hey, stay here. And he said, no way, as thy soul liveth and as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. And then they came to Jericho and Elijah said, hey, stay here. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. And then they came to Jordan and he said, stay here. And again, he said, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives. And now this woman, and I don't know if she knew what Elisha said to Elijah, but Elisha knows what Elisha said to Elijah. And when he hears this woman say this phrase, I'm certain it brought him back to that moment when he wanted something so desperately from God through the passing of Elisha that he identified with the suffering that this woman was feeling and he realized at this point that God is in this and that God is up to something. And so it says, that he arose and he followed her. And Gehazi passed on before them and he laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him and he told him, saying, the child is not awake. Now I want to point something out here, not necessarily in context with our our study, but I think it's worthy of notation. And that is this, is that the authority of Elisha was not in his staff or in his position, if you will. The authority and the anointing that was in Elisha was just there. It was in Elisha. And I think that's important for us to understand that who you are before God, the authority that you and I carry as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ within this world has nothing to do with the title or the position or the signet of our authority. But rather, the authority or the calling that God has given to each one of us resides within us. And what's irrelevant is the title that we carry or the staff, the signal, the signet of it. What God has placed in you cannot be taken away from you. That authority is internal. It's given by God. And so even when Elisha tries to use his ordination papers, so to speak, bring my certificate to the boy and lay it on his head. God says, no, no, that's not where it is. It's not in your title and what you are. It's in who you are. And that's true whether you're a prophet or whether you're a teacher or whether you're a mother. The calling that God has placed upon your life resides within you, and God's authority as such resides within you. Thus, he will be with you, even if you don't have the degree or the title necessarily that goes along with it. Well, it says that when Elisha now was coming to the house, behold, the child was dead, and he laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore... And he shut the door upon the two of them. So Elisha and the child are in the room together alone. And he prayed to the Lord. Now, what would you do? (laughs) I bet he prayed. (laughs) What? (laughs) What do I do now, Lord? And, And he, I'm certain that he prayed to the Lord. And it says that he went up and he laid upon the child. 
And he put his mouth upon his mouth. And his eyes upon his eyes. And his hands upon his hands. And he stretched himself upon the child. The same thing that Elijah did when he was called upon in the same way. And the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned. He got up from there and he walked in the house to and fro, pacing, praying, I'm sure. Lord, what are you going to do here? What do you want me to do? And he went up and he stretched himself upon him and the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and he said, call this Shunammite. So he called her and when she was come in unto him, he said, take up your son. And then she went in and she fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son and she went out. What we see here is we see a woman who has incredible faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says that without faith it is impossible to please God. This woman realizes that God didn't give her a son just to take him away. And she's going to believe God that if he can give her a son in her old age then he can raise this son in his young age, dying too soon. Hebrews 11.35, that great chapter on faith, profiling the heroes of faith throughout the Old Testament. It says in verse 35, it says that through faith, women, plural, received their dead back to life again. And that reference is one of them to this woman right here, that it was through her faith that she saw this great miracle realized within her life. Now, some people say when somebody dies, and it doesn't just have to be a child, it could be uh, anyone in life, that they say, well, God must have wanted them. And I think that's true. You know, there's probably times where, you, you know, they're more useful in heaven now than they are on earth, and so God takes them home. Well, this woman looked at God and looked at those that would say that, and she would say, I want him more. And she went to God, and she fought with him over it uh, in in all this uh, thing. What's the application of, of this chapter? What's the message behind the miracle that's performed here for you and me as we want to apply this to our lives? I think it's a couple of things. First of all, that just because something happens doesn't mean that it's automatically God's perfect will or God's final answer. He does things in our lives all the time just because he wants relationship with us. I think of Jacob when he was coming back from his 20 years with Laban. And he had kind of, you know, been on a roller coaster with God for all those years. And now he was going to have to face Esau. And that night, the Lord came to him in the middle of the night. Imagine, put yourself in the scene. You're laying out under the stars. You have no light, no lantern, nothing. You're separate from everyone. And all of a sudden, you hear someone running towards you. And all of a sudden, someone dive tackles you and you get into a wrestling match with someone. That's what happened to Jacob. Only he was wrestling with Jesus. It was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus wrestling with Jacob. And God does that to us sometimes. Is that he'll do things within our life that cause us to wrestle with him and say, God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And sometimes the reason is because he wants us to wrestle back. He wants relationship. He wants us to talk to him, to plead with him, to pray through things. He wants us to obtain promises and not just hand us everything. God doesn't spoil his kids. He's interested in developing our character and developing the relationship that he wants with us. So sometimes he allows things to happen, even tragic things, hard things, difficult things to happen within our lives. And it is not faith to just accept it all the time and say, well, it happened, it's bad, and therefore this must be the perfect will of God. Really? Maybe not. Maybe he wants you to wrestle with him a little bit and he's going to reverse the tide on this thing. 
Now, he might, as you wrestle with him, say, this is a done deal, like he did with Paul. God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. Three times he prayed, and God said, no, Paul, it's not going to happen even if you ask me ten times. And Paul said, okay, and he was then able to accept it. But do you at least pray? When things happen, do you at least say, no, God, reverse the decision. I don't agree with what you're doing here. God honors it when this woman does, and I believe that he will within our life. Don't accept everything that happens as the will of God just because it happens. Second point, I would say this. This is a word to your mother. No pun intended. Or a word to you, mother, if you are a mother here. And that's this. And Pay attention, please, mom. God did not give you a child just to have him then lost eternally. It is not uncommon for a young man to grow up in a Christian home, to hear the story, the miraculous things of how God led that family in years past, as would be the case with this young man. And to be taught the scriptures and to be taught to follow God faithfully, but then to have your son go out into the field, which in the Bible is always a type of the world, go out into the world and have their head messed up. They go off to college and they're gone for just a couple of months and they come back and they're saying things that to you sound like, my head, my head. Evolution, you know, sexuality, self-expression, alternative lifestyles. And you're going, what's the matter with your head? Come here, son, you know. And you're watching before your very eyes as someone who you raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, you're watching them die spiritually in your lap before your hands. How do you handle it when that happens? I believe that this woman's response towards Elisha when it happens to her son physically should be for us an exhortation of how we handle it and go to Jesus when it happens to our kids spiritually. The first thing that she does is she lays him on the prophet's bed. She lays him in the place, so to speak. For you and me, that means that she commits to him, him too, all the things that he heard and learned in your care growing up. This son of mine, this daughter of mine has been taught your ways, God, and I'm going to lay them up before you, rest them in the care of what they've heard. And then, mom, here's what you do. You believe. That's what this woman does. She says two times, she looks at her husband and she says, it is well. And then when Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, says, hey, what's going on? She looks at him and she says, it is well. She professed in faith that her son was going to live. She would not accept death as an option within his life. And then when she got to the feet of Elisha, she pled with him until he came and did what only he could do. And moms, dads, that's the way we need to go to Jesus for our kids. Because you cannot impart to them eternal life. You cannot bring them to the point where they will be born again. Only Jesus can do that. And your position is to hold on to what's been sown into their heart. Rest them on the prophet's bed. Then profess in faith that God is going to come through and do what he said he would and bring that seed to germination. And then you cling to the feet of Jesus and do not let go until he answers your prayer. As we see, she said, as the Lord lives and as my soul lives, I will not depart from you until you come and answer this prayer. A child's greatest need, mom and dad, is not a wholesome environment. And it's not the love that you give to them or the good example or the good home life or to have their needs met and to give them provisions and provide for them a college education. That is not the greatest need in your children's life, in our children's life. The greatest need that they have is to be born again spiritually, to be resurrected from the curse of sin and brought to regeneration. They need to encounter the God that we've encountered. Now, how do we do that? We pray, 
then we do what Elisha did. What did he do? Heart to heart, mouth to mouth, eye to eye, and hand to hand. He stretched out his life upon the lad. And that has to be a part of what we do. Yeah, we're not Elisha, we're not the prophet, and we're not Jesus. But that's how you bring life, spiritual life, into the heart of a young person. You've got to get on their level. You've got to connect heart to heart with them. There's got to be an eye to eye of getting into their world and seeing the world the way that they do and relating to them in it. There has to be a mouth to mouth talking to them, listening to them, conversing with them, interacting with them. And there has to be a hand to hand walking with them, holding their hand in life, raising them up, not just teaching them things, not just going through the motion and providing, and that's all good stuff. But without the relational aspect of it, we're depriving them of what can only be caught and not simply taught. We've got to be that. Now, for dads, that's an extremely challenging word, isn't it? I mean, moms, you live there. You're so good at that. But for us dads, it's the hardest thing for us to do, to get on the level of a child. But yet it's so essential, isn't it? It needs to be done. Well, we see Elisha doing it here, and we saw that that was the answer uh, in this child's life. He comes back to life. So uh, we see the miracle, uh, and the message of that miracle is that, 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 that an event is not always God's final answer. And that God's greatest desire for our kids is that they be resurrected uh, and saved. We move on in verse 38 to uh, our next miracle. We see Elisha purifying some poisonous porridge. It says that Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land, or a famine. And the famine in the land was always indicative of the spiritual condition of the people. And so the overwhelming... Uh, thing that was going on was an apostate nature and God's response to that was that he sent a famine and that famine didn't just affect the normal people uh, that were sinning but it also affected uh, the godly people who weren't sinning and so it says that the sons of the prophets which was just another way of saying the students of the word I always pictured in my mind for the longest time like that these are the little kids that get shipped off to prophet school of the older prophets that's not really the idea the idea is that as the sons of the prophets that they're the students they're in bible school they're learning the scriptures and that whole thing and and the prophets like elisha it was elijah they were the teachers and so they would be considered the sons of the teachers of the prophets that were teaching them and so these are the students in bible school and that they were sitting before Elisha, and he said unto his servant, so probably Gehazi again, set on the great pot and see their boil pottage or porridge for the sons of the prophets. And so one went out into the field to gather herbs, and he found a wild vine. And he gathered thereof wild gourds, his lap full, and he came and he shred them into the pot of pottage, for they knew them not. So they poured out for the men to eat, and it came to pass that as they were eating of the pottage, that they cried out and they said, O men of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat thereof. So not long after they begin eating this porridge, there's a reaction that begins to happen. Some kind of poisonous reaction or allergic reaction happens within some of the men, and they begin to realize that something poisonous has been placed within it, and and it's unedible. And so he said, verse 41, then bring meal or grain or wheat. And he cast it into the pot and he said, pour out for the people that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. 
And so the miracle that Elisha does at this point is that he adds wheat or grain or wholesome substance to this poisonous pot. And the miracle is that the pottage is then healed. It is no longer poisonous or unedible that they are then able to eat it. Now spiritually in our day right now, there is a famine in the land that we live in. There's also the beginnings of a famine physically. But there is absolutely a famine spiritually within our land, and there has been for quite some time. Not a famine for food, but a famine for truth. Amos, the prophet, said that in the last days that there will be a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. We've seen that in our country. Paul said that the days would come when even Christians will not endure sound teaching. But they'll heap to themselves teachers with itching ears that say things that they want to hear, that they can receive because they don't want to be challenged with truth. The pulpits in the United States of America in today's day are severely lacking in substance. There's a famine for the hearing of the word of God. However, pulpit time has to be filled with something. People are still sitting in churches and they're still hearing something, but what they're hearing is not the purity of God's message and God's truth. They're hearing psychology. Oftentimes, they're being entertained. There's poetry and artistic expression. In many churches across the nation, there's false teaching, a prosperity gospel that teaches contrary to what Jesus taught, a gospel of cheap grace, of conversion without true repentance, all kinds of doctrines that are being placed into the pot of truth and people are partaking of it. And the result of that is that there's a reaction. That just as there was a reaction in them that caused them to realize that there's death in the pot, we see that in the lives of those that profess themselves to be God's people in our nation today, there's a reaction in their spiritual well-being. They're sick. There's people that aren't walking right. They're not behaving right because they're not believing right. And there's something happening where those that are professing to know Christ aren't walking with Christ or living for Christ, and it's because what they've taken in of Christ is noxious or poisonous or insipid. Well, the solution to it is not to go in and try to identify every little piece of poison and remove it. We're not to, oh, well, what are you believing? Oh, you're following that teacher? Well, let me give you the reason why that's a false teacher. That's not what we're called to do. That's not the solution to the issue. Elisha doesn't say, pull out the poisonous gourd. Fine. Hey, anything that's orange in there, pull it out. That wasn't the solution. The solution was to pour in what is pure. If you want to remove what's bad, all you've got to do is pour in what's good. And if the churches in the United States of America are going to be healed, it's not going to happen because we refute and fight against every false doctrine that's being taught. It's going to happen when the pastors and preachers begin to give again what is true. What is wholesome and right. Jesus said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The pure, healthy, spiritual substance that brings forth nourishment and spiritual strength and health is found completely in the word of God. Jesus said to Peter right before launching off into heaven in the beginning of the church, he said, Peter, this is your commission as a leader in my church. Feed my sheep. He didn't say address issues or remove poison. He said, feed my sheep. Give them what's pure. And the word of God will automatically address and fix what is impure and wrong. Put in what's good and the bad will be flushed out. That's the message of this miracle. Stick to what's true. You want the poison out of your life? Put the word in. 
And as you replace what's in you with God's truth and God's influence, you're going to see what's bad miraculously flushed out of your life. One more, real quick, three verses, verse 42. It says that then there came a man from Baal Shalisha, and he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. Now, before you picture like, you know, a loaf of French bread or chola bread, you know, that will feed a multitude, these loaves are just pitas. He brings 20 pitas of the barley uh, harvest and then full ears of corn in the husk, just the first fruits of his crop. And he said, Elisha said, give unto the people that they may eat. I appreciate the gift, but don't give it to me. Give it to them. Let them eat of this food. And his servitor said, what? Should I set this before a hundred men? And he said, give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. There's going to be enough and there will be leftovers. So he set it before them and they did eat and they left thereof. There were leftovers according to uh, the word of the Lord that was given to him. I can't help when I read this, but to think what Jesus did when they were on the hillside for two days in a multitude that numbered 5,000 men. And the only food that was present there was the lunch of a small boy, five loaves and a couple of fish. And as he brought and presented that to Jesus, the first fruits, really the whole fruits of what he had to eat on that excursion. Jesus said, give this to the multitude. And the disciples argued and said, we can't feed with this. And he said, Give it to me. He looked up to heaven. He broke the bread. He gave thanks. And then he distributed to them and them to the multitude. And it says, not only did all the people that were there present eat, but that there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers when it was over. A much greater expression of what we see taking place in the life of Elisha and the ministry of Elisha here. What's the lesson in it and what God uh, wants us to take away from it? I think it's uh, twofold. Number one is this. is Never take for granted what God can do with the little bit that we give to him in faith. The longer that we walk with the Lord, and I can say this for myself personally, then the greater we realize that he is, and the smaller and less significant we become. We begin to realize that we have very little to offer God practically as it concerns anything that he might want to accomplish through our lives within the world. And so we come to a point sometimes where we think, well, anything that I can contribute to God really doesn't do all that much. The time that I might donate or the class that I might teach or the money that I might give, what difference does it make in the grand scheme of things? God can speak matter out of pure nothing. So what does my small gift do in the grand scheme? The Bible says that he will multiply your seed sown and he will increase the fruit of your righteousness. And sometimes the smallest acts of giving that we express towards God, he takes and he uses them in ways that go far beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Rahab just hid two spies. I mean, big deal. Put that on your resume, Rahab. See how far that gets you. But when you carry that out into further weeks and years, you realize, well, what did what Rahab, you know, do accomplish? Well, she became, you know, the... Oh man, I wrote it on here and now I can't find all the list of things. That means I'm going to have to try to have to remember this, you know. But you go through and you look at what she did. She became the great, 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 great grandmother of King David. She opened the door to the promised land for the people of Israel. And she was in the genealogy and the lineage of Jesus Christ. And it all was just because she hid two spies, one simple, small act. Never take for granted what God can do with the little that you are, that we are. I'm not, I hate this. this 
looking down thing is not cool, you know, but what we are, we're nothing. We have nothing. But yet God says, give yourself to me. And when we give ourselves and give what we have, he takes it and he does with it far more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine. I believe every one of us will be shocked when we get to heaven and we see what God did with what we gave, whether it's our time or our resources or our energy. Whatever it is, he takes it so much further uh, than we could ever uh, imagine. The other thing is, is uh, and I see it in both passages, that this one and the New Testament mirror of it, is that there were leftovers that were accounted for. And that is that God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't even waste one little scrap of resource that he has at his disposal. And I think that's true in our lives, and it's true for every part of our lives. He doesn't waste anything. You may be going through some things right now in your life that make absolutely no sense to you. You might be in a season or maybe you're even taking a class. There could be something going on in your life right now that makes absolutely no sense to you whatsoever at all. You think this is just wasted time. This is a wasted season. God wastes nothing. Remember when you were in school? I do. And you would be in science class or math class and they'd be teaching you something so far outside of anything that applied to real life. And you would say, when am I ever going to use this in life? This, there's no sense in me being right here. And then, do you remember the day when you realized, wow, I use that stuff all the time? You never thought you would because you couldn't see the future. But then when you find yourself using it, you're glad that you had it. God does the same thing with us. The experiences that you're experiencing right now, the season of your life, the season of your faith, the things that you're struggling and toiling under that you think make no sense and are of no value at all, there will come a day when you will look back and you will say, wow, God, you saw what I could never see. You saw this day coming when I was struggling under that yoke and you were preparing me for something that I would need to be prepared for. He doesn't waste anything at all. Sometimes those trials are hard. But what's harder than those trials is getting to that point in your life and not being adequately prepared for what he's prepared you to be. So, Tonight we saw a barren woman who was miraculously given a child. And we learned from her that just because you haven't seen the outcome yet of the desire in your heart, that doesn't mean God is finished. We saw a bereaved woman who was robbed of her child. And we learned that just because things appear bad doesn't mean that that's necessarily God's final answer. We saw poisoned prophets. And we learned that we're called to feed upon the true vine. And the poison of the wild vines that have influenced our lives will be flushed out. And we heard or learned of a hungry multitude. And we learned that the little that we have to give can go way beyond what we could ever imagine. And that God doesn't waste even the smallest thing that he's doing within our lives. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the word of God. We thank you for the things that we're learning. We thank you, Lord, for the expression that these miracles illustrate of who you are and what you're doing within our lives. And so, Lord, tonight we present ourselves to you again. And we pray, Father, that in each one of our situations and circumstances, you would make application of these things. That as we move through tonight and lay our head and then rise up again tomorrow and move through our day, Lord, that you would give us insight into how close you are and to what you're doing within us. And Lord, I pray that our joy would be so full as we realize and recognize that you are not going to quit in what you've started in us. So please, Lord, 
Make us aware of your love again within our lives. Fill us with your truth. And let us be used in this world as an influence for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.